was at a conference on comparative religions in Oxford. I know some of you guys are thinking, boy, I am glad I'm not at that conference. Um, a bunch of guys were sitting around and they were talking as guys and gals do when they're at conferences about things, about the different religions that were in the world. And, and of course, human nature tends to kind of want to to say that mine's better, right? And so, so everyone was kind of trying to debate what is the, the superior religion in the world? Well, one particular guy said, you know, mine is, and another one, and another. And finally, one guy said, I think Christianity is superior religion in the world. And he was, he was followed up with the question, what makes Christianity, in your mind, the superior religious option for people in the world? Well, they, they started to think about the things that made Christianity unique. And he said, well, the incarnation, the fact that God became man, that makes Christianity special. And, and then... Someone pointed out that there were other religions that had an incarnation story. It maybe wasn't the same as the Bible account and certainly not as rich and deep and full, but they had a, a story of God becoming a man. Well, th then one of them said, well, maybe it's the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus came back from the dead again and was witnessed by a lot of people. And although the resurrection of Jesus is a highly historically verifiable fact, and although we have more information about that than any other re supposed resurrection story, that doesn't particularly make Christianity unique because other religions purport, at least, that their deities in some form or another either resurrected or will someday resurrect. It's about that time that one of the eminent theologians at that time stepped into the room. His name is C.S. Lewis. Some of you guys know him from his books that he's written. And C.S. Lewis asked in a traditional British way, what is all this rumpus about anyway? I guess rumpus is for like noise, rowdy, mess, whatever. Um, so what's this rumpus about anyway? And they're like, well, we're trying to figure out what it is that makes Christianity unique from any other religion in the world. C.S. Lewis didn't even hesitate. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And although the guys continued to debate for a while, the answer to the debate had been given. Grace was that thing that made Christianity unique. No matter what your religious background might be, the notion that God's love comes free of charge with no strings attached just seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhists have an eightfold path, and it's full of ways that you work your way toward God. The, the Hindu has a doctrine of karma, and that you work out all these things that kind of make you lesser of a person, and eventually someday you reach nirvana. The Jewish have a covenant. You're either in or you're out of that covenant. The Muslims have a code of law, a very in-depth group of things that you have to do in a particular way, and if you do them in this way, then you have God's favor, and if you don't, then you fall out of favor with God. But Christianity has a thing called grace. Grace is often defined as unmerited favor. 
In each of these world religions, there's a way to earn approval, but only in Christianity does God's love come to us unconditionally. And yet, for most of us, that's difficult to accept. And I think that's why Jesus spent so much time talking about grace. He, he, he would talk about how that the sun shines on the just and the unjust. He's explaining that God is gracious to everyone. He, he said, you guys worry and you, you, you toil about what you're going to eat, but look at the birds. They don't, they don't lay up treasures in barns, and yet the Lord feeds them. Or look at the flowers of the field. Solomon, dressed in all of his regalia, was not dressed as splendidly as a, as a lily that's out in the field. And that's just grass. Today it's here to gone. Tomorrow it's gone, thrown into a fire. In fact, Jesus was a little bit like a visitor from a foreign country who notices what natives overlook. I used to live in northern Minnesota in a town called Bemidji. Most of you probably haven't been there. But uh, Bemidji is kind of a vacation destination up north. And people, when they ask me where I lived before I came here, I tell them Bemidji. And a lot of people around the country know the name of that town. Like, oh, man, we went on a vacation there. The fishing was awesome. We had a great time there. I love this particular resort. Or I went to this particular campground. Or our family was just so thrilled with this thing. And I'm thinking the whole time, I don't even know where that campground is. I've never been to that resort. And that thing sounds really cool. Why didn't I know about it? Well, it's because I was a native there. I lived there. And when you're a native in a place, you just take things for granted. People come to South Louisiana. In fact, when I tell them now that I'm from South Louisiana, I got a call. This is a quick story. But I got a call this spring from somebody with the USDA. That's always a little concerning. They wanted, they wanted to audit my dairy, my, dairy, uh, my dairy farm, which I also thought was a little funny. But uh, I'm like, well, if you want to call it a dairy farm, I guess so. Um, and uh, so she had a bunch of questions about my dairy farm. And uh, she really realized really quickly we weren't a big farm. Um, and uh, she's like, where are you at? I'm in South Louisiana. She's like, there's no dairies in South Louisiana, so we called you. <laughs> I'm like, obviously there's no dairies if you call me, right? And she said, you know what? I love South Louisiana. She said, it's one of my favorite places I've ever been. And some of you are sitting here this morning like, what? where did that woman go? You know, <laughs> what was she doing? Favorite places she's ever been? Oh, and then she talked, I love the culture. I love the food. I love the music. I love the people. They're friendly. I, I, I love Lafayette. It's just so diverse. We don't notice it because we live here. And sometimes, guys, I don't think we notice the grace of God because we've always lived in it. Jesus saw it everywhere. And yet the funny thing about it is, is that Jesus rarely used the word grace. He chose rather to communicate grace in how he acted in things that he did and in stories that he told. And maybe that's what makes grace so challenging for us, is that it's not really something that you can put into words. It's bigger than our mental concept really even fully comprehends. And so when we try to explain grace, it comes out wrong, or it comes out as permission to do sin, rather than the freedom that God really intended for it to be. Maybe it is that grace is one of those things that has to be demonstrated and not just told about. We've been talking about the foundations of family. 
the things that kind of just lay underneath a godly home to support that home and to strengthen that home. We talked about how important it is to bring Jesus home and, and make him that center part of our life. Invite his presence into your home. No matter what the situation may be, Jesus has a place there and he, he'll have a, have, a, have a profound effect in your home. Last week, we talked about godly habits and how that mothers seem to just pour a lot of those things into our life, and there's so much value in habits. This morning, we're going to talk about yet another foundation stone of a home, and that is the foundation of grace. Grace should be the foundation that your home is built on, and yet it's not something that comes easily. Romans, the second chapter in verse 4, Paul asks a question here. He says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, the tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Paul wanted to make sure that the church in Rome understood something, that, that God's grace, that God's kindness, that God's permissive will is in, a pla in, in place so that we might understand God. We might become the kind of people that God wants us to be. God wants our homes. God wants our lives personally, and God wants his church to be a live demonstration of grace. I love live demonstrations. Probably you do too. I love it when people show me how to do things, when they take the tools, and maybe it's a YouTube video, or, or, or maybe you're going to someplace, and you watch the blacksmith take a chunk of iron and turn it into a tool. I love those things because I, I can see how to do it, how to hold my hands, and how to work the tools. You can feel the heat from the forge. You can hear the sound of the hammer. And there's so much that can be learned when we see a live demonstration, and I think grace is one of those things that needs a live demonstration. I think our world and our families need that live demonstration. And this morning, we're gonna talk about four ways that we can demonstrate that within our homes and families. I wanna say quickly as we jump into this, as we do with all these sermons, it doesn't matter this morning if you're a single person here. It doesn't matter this morning if you don't have family at home. You might be a grandparent. You might be an aunt or an uncle. The things that we're talking about today, we're going to apply to family. But these are universal principles. Grace is something that all of us need to have. And grace will change our relationships with people around us in ways that we maybe never imagined. We might not imagine it, but grace is that thing that provides the freedom our family needs to grow. If your family doesn't have that freedom, they tend to never grow and mature and become the people that God has created them to be. And so how do we, how do we demonstrate that freedom in a way that, that doesn't leave them without boundaries, but also provides them with an opportunity to grow and explore and make mistakes and become better? Well, the first thing is I think that we need to instill in our families the freedom to be real. You have young people, young kids in your home. Really, I think probably this goes for all of us today. Where are you actually real in the world? Think about it for a little bit. Probably isn't at work because we, we tend to project an image of, of sophistication or of authority or of control or of competency while we're at work because we need to do that there. Certainly not on social media because we are constantly posturing and shaping ourselves, creating for our, ourselves a narrative that we want people to believe about us on social media. 
For a lot of us, we're not really that real with our extended family. Where are you real? If you're a mom and dad right now and you're creating the fabric of your home, I want to challenge you to make it a place where everyone has the freedom to be real. Let me illustrate. Second grade boy comes home from school. He's picking at his dinner in the plate. Dad and mom realize that there's something up. Dad and mom pass that silent look back and forth to each other. The dad decides it's his turn to take a stab at it. And so he says, hey, son, what? Something go wrong today at school? The little guy says, well, I gave, I gave this girl in my class a Valentine's Day card for Valentine's. And then, and then I asked her if she would want to be my, my girlfriend. And she said no because she was already my best friend's girlfriend. Stab at his beans, right? You know, that dad has a choice right there. That dad can come back with a statement like, kid, you don't even know what you're talking about. Love, love, you're not, you're too young for puppy love, child. Let you, you just forget that and someday you'll figure it out. He can do that. But here's the thing. The likelihood of that young man ever opening up about what's going on here with his dad again, probably not very good. Now, that dad's right in everything that he just said to his kid. But he didn't say it through the lens of grace. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't need to get too, too concerned about a second grader girl that said that she likes his best friend because she probably will like somebody else's best friend in a few weeks, right? And the truth is, is that you're seven years old, eight years old, maybe at the most, and you've got years before you're ever going to get in a serious committed. Those things are all true. But how that dad chooses to communicate that sets the groundwork for whether or not his children are real with him. This is a powerful way to begin to demonstrate grace to our kids and to our families. Allowing vulnerability in a home shows children the grace we get from the Lord when we share our thoughts with him. How many of you have ever looked back at a prayer request or prayers at some point in your life and you thought to yourself, I cannot believe that I actually prayed for that. Thank God that he didn't answer that prayer, right? And you think back to that moment and you were intensely focused in prayer and you meant it, right? And you really thought this was what you needed or this is what would happen or needed to happen or this is how things should be. And then, and then you realize later on in life that was way way off base. You were overthinking it way before your time. We need that freedom to be real. I would encourage all of you to allow that foundation of grace to create that opportunity for realness. We all need a place where we can come and be who we are. And you know, sometimes that person is the person that we want to be, and sometimes that person isn't yet. And we're not talking about marriage as much this morning, but let me just say that these things apply to marriage in such a big way. Every one of us that's married here today needs somebody that we can be real around and who know the real you. And if, if, if it's not safe, the majority of us will never be that way. I've done a lot of marriage counseling over the years, and one of the things that I've found out is that oftentimes 
one partner or another in a relationship does not feel that they, it is safe for them to really talk about what's going on in their life. And that creates a tension that begins to build in a marriage and begins to break apart the intimacy and the love that God wants to exist there. Grace allows us to be who we really are. And secondly, grace allows us to be open with one another. Openness is a hard thing to achieve because we are afraid of being criticized. In fact, we live in a world today where we aren't very open about a lot of things because we know that if we are, we will be canceled by somebody. And I know we're very critical and grumpy about the cancel culture in our world, and I think it's a, it's, it's unre- it's a regrettable practice that's going on. But let's be honest, they didn't invent it. Probably a lot of people on the other side of the political spectrum did. Jesus didn't cancel people. He talked to women who had been married multiple times and were living with a man. He spoke gently to women who were caught in the act of adultery and publicly made, made, a, made a, a humiliated example of. Jesus didn't cancel people because Jesus had grace on people. And that freedom to be open is something that we respect about Jesus, but needs to be a part of our homes, whether we're raising our children or our grandchildren or if the neighbor kids are coming over. You might say, well, Jason, what do you mean when you say open? And that's a good question. I'm talking about that conversations can be had around your table that are honest, that are open. For instance, maybe your kids are having some doubts about things spiritually. There's probably not a one of us in this room today that haven't struggled with some spiritual concept at some point. And is your table, is your home, is your family the kind of place where where a kid can come and say, you know what, I don't know if God exists. I don't know if I believe in God. I I don't know what I think about fill in the blank. Or, Or is your home the kind of place where that will be met with a criticism or a shunning or with a long sermon? Spiritual doubts exist, and our kids need to share them with us because when they do, then we can begin to start a conversation of finding answers for them. A lot of times culturally, our our children are being told that there are no answers and that people that follow Jesus are just kind of blind followers and are just doing things, and they don't realize that, that probably the vast majority of the people that they look up to as adults that think they have it all figured out and have figured out the course and the direction for their life, that the vast majority of those adults were one day just like them, struggling with the same questions, and maybe even right now still understand the struggle that they're dealing with. And when they can share that question, how do we know that God exists? Then we as parents have an opportunity to start another conversation. We know that God exists because. If your kids answer, ask a question that you don't know the answer to, and I think sometimes as parents, that's why we're reticent to create this openness, because when we open that spigot, what's going to come out, right? And, and if you've raised kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes their questions are deeper or from an angle that we aren't comfortable with, or we've never thought about those things before. And the good thing is, is that you're part of a church family full of people that come from a very wide variety of backgrounds. There's a lot of people that have struggled with a lot of things, and you are not alone. You can pick up the phone and say, hey, 
<laughs> to a mentor that maybe uh, somebody older than you, a mom or a dad or an older church Christian in the church, call McKay and I and say, hey, I've got this question. How would you answer this question? Because listen to me, your kids can come and talk to me, and that's great. I love to talk to your kids, but what I say to your kids doesn't mean half as much as what you say to your kids. I would much rather tell you what to tell them because then you're their spiritual hero. And that's really what I want them, I, that's what I really want you to be. I want you to be that person that they know when they're 40 years old. You know, dad always knows the answers to these things. And then they're gonna look back, look back and realize dad didn't know the answers either. Dad just went and found them. But mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, the neighbor next door, their home was a place that was open for me to ask the questions. Kids need to also be able to be candid when they're angry or they're frustrated with you. Now, I'm not saying that the rules change here. Hold on for a second. But I am saying that they have an opportunity to explain that they're feeling angry and frustrated. They need to be able to say things like, you know what, that hurt me. Or you embarrassed me. Or you humiliated me in that moment. Because sometimes as parents, we do that. We don't mean to. We don't think anything about it. We're super comfortable in the skin that we're in, right? And so we, we say something or we do something. My poor kids have had to deal with that a lot in life because they got a dad that preaches, right? Most preachers' kids do. Um, we make mistakes as parents. And sometimes we accidentally communicate things we don't mean to. Here's a beautiful thing about having a home of grace where where they have the freedom to be open is that they can tell us that we hurt them. They can tell us that they don't understand why this rule exists. They can communicate to us that they're frustrated by these boundaries. And it gives us an opportunity to maybe reevaluate that boundary if it needs reevaluated or explain that boundary if they're older. Or if nothing else, to just put our arms around them and say, I understand that you're frustrated and I'm going to help you work through that. Because if you're an adult here this morning, you know that life is frustrating. One of the greatest life skills you can learn is how to deal with frustrating situations. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. I think that's pretty powerful. <laughs> I don't want my kids to miss God's grace. I don't want my church family to miss the grace of God. It's that freedom that gives them a chance to grow and become the people that God wants them to be. I don't want them to miss it. Notice what he continues by saying, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. Bitterness is one of the quickest ways that we can shut the ears of our children, of our coworkers, of our spouses, of our friends and family to the message and the power of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we have a home that's built on a foundation of grace, that home is, is open to having conversations that maybe are uncomfortable. But when we allow our children to respectfully, and I want to say that again, if you're a kid here today, you have never have a right to talk to anyone, certainly not your parents, disrespectfully, right? We are to honor and respect your parents. But when your home is built on a foundation of your children being able to respectfully vocalize their frustration, anger, or hurt, it keeps bitterness from growing, and it does something else pretty special. It teaches them how to communicate 
their feelings. We live in a world today where most people don't know how to properly communicate what they're feeling. So they hold it in and they bottle it up because they know that what they're feeling is intense. And then at some moment when the pot is too full, when the pressure is too high, it explodes out of them generally in anger and in frustration. They say things, they do things, they act in ways, they sin. And they pay for the rest, those consequences the rest of their life. A home of grace gives our kids an opportunity to learn how to how to vocalize, how to share what they're feeling in a way that they're appreciated. doesn't necessarily mean the rules change, but it means their perception of that is very, very different. Number three, a home of grace gives our kids the freedom to pursue holiness. Now, I know you might be thinking, what? Grace leads to holiness, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. At some point along the way, we've gotten confused, and we think that grace is permissiveness. That's not the Bible definition of grace. Grace is simply the opportunity for us to pursue holiness and and to do so without fear that we will fail. Because the truth of the matter is that all of us will fail. If you're raising kids here today, they're going to struggle, and I know they're going to struggle because you struggled, because I struggled, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we could probably spend the rest of the morning talking about the spectacular calamities that we caused as kids in our lives. In fact, I think that in some ways, the the current generation does a lot less crazy, dumb things than what we did when we were younger. And yet here we sit today, pursuing a closer walk with God. And that's exactly what we want for our children as well. How does grace give them the freedom to pursue holiness. Well, they're going to make those mistakes in judgment. Their timing is going to be off. Their good intended activities will will not be the appropriate activity for the moment, and they're going to mess up. Maybe that will just be a mistake. Sometimes that will be a sin. Grace-based homes give children the freedom to make those mistakes, but not be alone. Your kids are going to mix, mess up, mess up. And here's a question if you're a parent or grandparent or whoever here today. The question is, who are they going to go to talk to about it? Are they going to go to their friends? Because even though their friends are probably great people, if their friends are their age, their 16-year-old kid, their advice is going to be what a 16-year-old kid is going to give advice, right? And it's probably not the best. Are they going to go to other people, or are they going to come to you? If my kids sin, I want them to know that they can come to me. I'm not going to excuse their behavior. I'm not going to pass aside a consequence that they know exists for that. But I do want to help them work through it. Grace is never a lower standard. And I want to say that quickly this morning. Uh, Repeat that again. Grace does not abandon God's standards of truth because truth is set in this world so that we might be free. You don't do your child any good if if you change the standards on how they're supposed to live because you're just giving them a false understanding of life. We, we talked a little bit about bitterness a moment ago, and, and a while ago I had a student that was sitting in my office, and they were so bitter at their parents and so angry. And ask them, why are you so angry and bitter at your, at your folks? 
And they said, I'll tell you why, because they never gave me any boundaries. I never had any rules. They just said, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Just do whatever you want. I want you to be free to make your own choices. And they knew that my choices were going to wreck my life. And they didn't tell me just because they wanted me free. And they were mad. They were frustrated. They were angry because, because we need boundaries and we need confinement. So when we talk about the freedom to pursue holiness, we're talking about creating an environment where your kids recognize that the goal is clearly set, but that none of us, including those of us who are their parents, are perfect at getting there. When you can ally with your kids to help them gain victory over their struggles through the power of Jesus Christ, you're not just teaching them what they shouldn't do, but you're also teaching them what they should do. Showing them how to, how, to, how to work through those struggles in life. And I don't care who you are, if, especially if, you're, if they're kids in your home, you've worked through that. Now, you might have forgotten about it, but, but, but put yourself with them. Kind of identify in that situation. You were scared and you told a lie in that moment. Begin to kind of work that back with them because you want your children to be kids that avoid the consequence of so much sin. You know, sometimes we, we kind of model Christianity with almost like a Nike sort of attitude, the just do it sort of thing. You know, what do you, what do, you do? You just do it. Just do it. All right, well, that works kind of, sort of. You hunker down, you try harder, and sometimes we do need to try harder. But oftentimes we, we find what Jesus told us we would find at the end of that, and that is that we find ourselves incapable of actually accomplishing it with the tools that we have. And we need help. How do I learn to become honest? I told the lie before I even thought about it, Mom. How do I learn to, to speak truthfully to my neighbor? And that's the power of explaining grace to our children. It's an outpouring of what Jesus has done in our life. If a mom or dad is letting kids get by with stuff under the guise of being nice, that's not grace. And if mom, or if a dad or a mom is enforcing a law in a heavy-handed, guilt-inflicting way, that's not grace either. Grace is when we balance those two, when we offer discipline and correction, but we do so with respect for the child's dignity and with a great concern for their spiritual restoration. We don't talk down to our kids, we talk with them. We don't boss them, we lead them. That's the thing that made Jesus so special in the world, right? Jesus, Jesus was not qualified to be here in a sense. His moral standards were way higher than everyone else's. His intellectual thought processes were higher at 12 years of age than the adults that were living in that culture. Jesus had physical and spiritual power that was far greater than anyone else who's ever lived. He would speak to demons and the demons would answer him because he had that much authority. And yet, children came to him. Broken people were attracted to him because Jesus knew how to get down on their level and not talk at people, but talk with people. He knew how to love people, and that comes through grace. Jesus never lowered a standard, but what he did was show us that we could meet the standard with his help. Hebrews 12th chapter and verse number six 
is a verse that I think we probably all could amen this morning. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Correction, discipline, pressure, whatever word you want to use this morning, it's necessary in my life, in your life, in all of our lives. In fact, the Bible says that if you love someone, you will discipline them because you want them to live a life that's controlled. You want them to live a life heading in the right direction. If you have parents here, or if you have kids here today, I know that's what you want for your kids like I want for mine. I want them to live lives that are self-disciplined and self-controlled. The writer of Hebrews tells us that that process is uncomfortable. In verse 11, he says, For a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You're a mom with a new little kid, and the kid's acting up. There's that struggle sometimes. I don't want to break their heart. I don't want to, I don't want to take away these privileges. I want them to enjoy this day. I want them to, to be happy with me. I want us to be a family that loves each other and is close to one another. And discipline sometimes is unpleasant, not just for the one receiving discipline, but also for the one who's prescribing that discipline. But I want you to listen to what comes next. All discipline is, seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice that? Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Guys, we live in a chaotic, crazy world, and I wish I could tell you that I thought it was going to get better, but I don't think anyone knows how to fix it. And we're not as a society yet ready to look up and say, God, help us. And I think things are going to get crazier and rather than better in the next few years. But here's the great news. What's going on around us really has no effect on what's going on within us. And when we are, when we are at peace with ourselves... And that's really what this is talking about right here, that when we deal with discipline, when we are dealt, when we are disciplined by God or we discipline other people, the yield of it later, not then, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We are okay with the world the way it is because we know that we're right with the God who created us. That only comes when we're willing to graciously provide correction training, discipline in our own lives and to the lives of our kids. But what does that look like? There's a lot of things I could say this morning. I don't want to take a lot of time because I have just a couple moments left. But let me just point out one thing that I think is really critical. Colossians 3 and verse 13 says, bear with each other. And forgive each other if any of you has a grievance against somebody. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's a prescribed method of forgiveness. That we're to forgive other people the way that God forgave us. And sometimes I think that we, we, we kind of apply that and say, okay, God forgave, so I have to forgive. And yes, that's true. But, but it's not just saying that. It's saying that we are to forgive in the way that God forgave us. The method of forgiveness that God says is forgiveness is also the method that we've got to apply to our forgiveness. Now, I recognize this morning that if we've been deeply hurt, that is more of a process than an instantaneous result. And I don't think God forgets anything. God chooses not to revisit some things. When there's a situation that comes up in your home with your child or with a spouse, 
and there's an encounter, whether that's a whole family get together, if it's kind of a public sin, sometimes that's the appropriate way to deal with it. Sometimes it's a one-on-one kind of thing where, where the two of you just sit down, mom and son, or dad and daughter, or however it might work, and you have that conversation. And there's repentance in that moment, and there's confession, and there's the things that are kind of required so that as a parent, you realize they understand that, yeah, there's consequences, maybe there's punishment that's handed out in that moment. How does God forgive? When God forgives, God leaves it alone. One of the most damaging things that you can do is constantly bring up the failings of the past into the lives of your children or in the life of your spouse. Here's a little secret. Satan is constantly whispering in our ear. You are. You are a coward. You're a liar. You're deceitful. You're a cheater. And the truth is, is that if you're a child of God here this morning, those things are not true about you. You are a child of God who struggles with lying. You're a child of God who struggles with faithfulness. You're a child of God who struggles in in cheating. And, And when we tell our kids or constantly remind them of things and failures in their life, we are defining them not by the things that God has built in them that are beautiful and good, but by the broken parts of their person. Sometimes maybe... Maybe we've mistakenly even told our kids, you're a liar. They begin to believe that. Some personalities will begin to pursue that with reckless abandon. God God forgives differently. In fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalms 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, God has removed our transgressions from us. I don't think God forgets things. I'm gonna say that again. The Bible never says that God forgets. What it says is that God chooses to not revisit them. They're in the past. They've been dealt with. If that happens again, it's a new instance. Don't bring up the past instance. Deal with the one that's present in front of you. Grace is not a doormat that we can casually wipe our sin off on as we walk into life. The Bible teaches us that grace is designed to be a monarch. It's the king of our life, and it does that in two ways. It instructs us, and it disciplines us, and it admonishes us to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, as Paul points out in Titus 2. And it also empowers us because God works in us to will and to act according to his, his good purpose, which Paul also points out in Philippians 2. God's grace works to to, to redefine who we think we are and to empower us to become the people that he wants us to be. Here's the trick about holiness. Sometimes we forget. Holiness is not something that that, that we do, but holiness is a willingness to be set apart to engage in the process of fighting for the full joy of becoming like Jesus. That's what Jesus wanted for us. He said that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free because when you embrace the truth and you begin to try to become like Jesus, and you know what? If you just threw that out there and said, hey, be like Jesus, all of us are quitting right now because we know we can't do it. But God said, I think over time you could become more and more like my son every day. You can learn how to deal with your anger like my son dealt with his anger. You can learn how to love people like I, like my son loved people. You can learn how to speak honestly and kindly to people as Jesus spoke the truth with love. You can become like my son. You can become every day a little bit more 
like Jesus. Titus 2 and verse 11 kind of lays this out. It says, for the grace of, of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says it's grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to not look at the things that we really want in this place, because we're never going to find them here, but rather to look in a different place, to live soberly, you know, there's no one, there's no one that's going to say living soberly is a fun way to live your life. There's no place in the world that's like, hey, you know what? The sober life is a good life. In fact, there's a lot of people that are saying the opposite of that. But we all know this morning that the consequence of living a life in non-sobriety is disastrous. When we live life fully aware of what's going on, we can make wise choices every day. That's where we want to live. That's where we want our kids to live, right? Living soberly and righteously and godly in the present age. No one gets too amped about those things, but that's really what leads to the kind of life we all want, which is a life of freedom. I'm going to close with this this morning, but I think that also grace, a home built on grace, gives children the right, the freedom to be different because some of us just are different. We're different from each other. Maybe your kids are different from you. Maybe you were a great cross-country runner and you want your kids to run cross-country and they hate running. Or maybe you were a great trumpet player and you want your kids to be in band. They don't want anything to do with a musical instrument. Or, or maybe, maybe growing up you were a star football player and your kid wants to play the trombone in the marching band. And you know what? Sometimes as parents, we live vicariously through our kids and we want them to be who we were. And they don't want to be that way because God created them differently. A home built on grace gives them the opportunity to be who they were created by God to be. Now, we're not saying here that we give away moral ground. In fact, when we, we're talking about learning to separate moral and non-moral issues. If God has said that we should or shouldn't do something, then we certainly should do or not do what God said because God has given us those commandments, not just for fun. He doesn't just make up rules because he enjoys rules. He makes those rules because he knows that will lead us to the ultimate life of freedom that we want. But there's a lot of things that are just non-moral. There's a lot of things that, that, that are just preference. I would rather you go to college and not be a carpenter. Or I would rather you, 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 you pursue a career in electrical trades and, and not be a, a bookworm that has a master's degree or a doctorate and is a professor somewhere. But you know what? It doesn't really matter if they're a plumber because we have great people in our church that are plumbers that love the Lord and they radiate the light of Jesus to people who have broken pipes. It doesn't matter if you're a professor in a classroom. We need godly professors in a classroom. What matters is that they love the Lord here. And no matter how different they may be than who we are, we want to pour in them and help them understand there's only one person in this world that we need them to look like. It's not mom, it's not dad, it's not grandma or grandpa. It's Jesus. I have a friend that met a girl a few years ago. He waited forever to get married and eventually he met this girl and it was just like his whole world was completed. 
they got married and it wasn't long after that he calls me up and says, hey dude, we're pregnant, we're about to have a kid. He was so pumped. And they're the perfect couple, you know, like just this, this, this cute girl and this guy that's got a, his life together. And, and they, they, they had so much good stuff kind of going for him. And I didn't know if he would ever get his life together, but he did get his life together. The Lord is good. And, uh, and everything just seemed to be going so well. And then a few months later, I got another phone call. I said, hey, man, I said, I need to talk. So what's up? He said, um, we went to the doctor's office today and they drew some blood and they've told us that our unborn baby is going to be a Down syndrome baby. And, and they, they wanted us to maybe think about abortion. And of course, his wife's like, no way are we aborting this child. And a few months later, born into this world, was a perfectly beautiful, healthy little baby that has an extra chromosome. Let me say to you that that girl is never going to be like most of us. She's always going to be different. That's the way God created her. And that's the way that family will love her. They're pregnant with another child now. Probably be a perfectly normal, by world standards baby. But that's the beauty of grace. That we don't all have to be the same. We just need to look like our father and his son, Jesus Christ. God wants us to have a home and a family built on grace. And when you do, you don't only make a difference in the lives of your kids, but that home of grace begins to make a difference in everyone who is around it. This morning, if you're here and you've never made a decision to follow God with your life, if you've never had your sins washed away in baptism, may I just say, hey, let's not wait any longer. The baptistry's here. Let's make that decision. Maybe, maybe today you're here and you're like, you know what, I, I need to be more gracious. We probably all do. Maybe as we stand together and sing this morning, you might just bow your head and say, God, give me the ability to see and look more like Jesus. Let's stand together, church, and let's sing. My Jesus, I
Every Sunday as a church family, we pause at the end of service to remember that Jesus did wear the thorns on his brow so that we didn't have to. This morning, Andrew's going to come and prepare our hearts as we remember the Lord's Supper. Good morning. It was about six years ago around I was baptized. And some of us in this church have been a Christian for about 10 years now, maybe some of us 20, some of us 40, and if we're not too embarrassed to say, maybe some of us have been a Christian for 50 years, and that is awesome. But I can't say that these past six years of my life of being a Christian that I've kept a perfect relationship with God all six years. And I can't tell you that every single time I come to take communion that it's extremely important to me for the past six years. I haven't been perfect with that. I once heard somebody tell me that the reason why they didn't take communion every week is because they didn't want to lose the importance of it. There's different churches and different congregations that don't take communion every Sunday. And there's different reasons for that. But this person's reason said that they didn't do it because they didn't want to lose the importance of it. I beg to say that I don't think that we lose the importance of communion because of how often we take it. I don't think that when we take communion every Sunday, that that's supposed to make us feel like it's traditional or something. I think if, that, if we lose the importance of communion, it has more to do with us. It has more to do with our heart and where we stand with our relationship with God. Because when you're in a good relationship with God and when you love Jesus, a lot of that stems from the cross because he loved us first. It's because what he did for us. Jesus loved us enough to die for us and so we love him, just as that hymn said. He loved us first, so we love him. I listed a few things this week that I believe about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Number one, I put that I think that the cross brings joy to us. Because Jesus paid a price that we can never pay back to him, and that should bring us joy, and we're grateful for that. I have a buddy that I work with, and at least two times a week, he buys lunch for me. I don't ask him to. He just does it. And every single time he buys me lunch, I feel guilty. I'm like, well, I want to buy you lunch back, and he doesn't let me. He'll race me to the counter and make sure that I can't buy him lunch back. And all I could really do about that is just say thank you and be grateful for it. And with Jesus' sacrifice, we should have joy filled because he's done something for us that we will never be able to repay him for. Number two, I put that the cross brings unity. I put this because when Jesus died, he didn't die for one individual person, or he didn't just die for the Jews, his people. He died for everyone. We are all his people. And it brings unity within each other because we can look at each other that way now. Knowing that we are all in one body and one spirit, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Thirdly, I put that the cross brings forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we're able to be forgiven of our sins. And because of the forgiveness and how it covers, his blood covers all of our sins, we're then made holy. 
Jesus looks at us as sons and daughters through his son, and we are made holy. And because we are made holy, lastly, we have the chance to go to heaven, the gift of salvation. We have the option for that, which he's given us a very good reason to love him and want to follow him and be in heaven with him one day. We read this scripture every Sunday, almost. Matthew 26, I'm going to start chapter 26 in verse 26. He says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this next verse 29, I want us to pay attention closely to. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is right before Jesus died on the cross. And he's telling them, do this in remembrance of me. And the next time we do this together, I'm going to be in heaven and I'm going to be with you in your observance. There are thousands of people across the nation. We're not the only church congregation in the United States. There's other churches of Christ that believe and follow the Bible and that love God that are partaking in communion today. And Jesus is telling us that while we're all doing this in one spirit and one body, that he is with us in our observance. If that is of little importance to us, then we have an issue. Jesus is with us today in our observance, and I want us to remember that. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for everything that you've given us, that we're able to be gathered together, Lord. I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us to examine our hearts and look to you. And I pray for some of us, if we've forgotten the importance of the cross, Lord, or if it's become traditional to us, that we would just find your love through the cross again that we'd realize what you did for us. I pray that you humble us in this time and we just look to you and how big and how great you are, Lord, and what you've done for us. I thank you for everything and it's in your name we pray.